0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And in the grand tradition of the Dark Crystal, Highlander 2, The Quickening, 2001 A Space Odyssey, boy, do we have a movie episode for you today. That's right. Uh, We'd previously wondered if we would get outside of
1: the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s for a movie episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we have because this
0: episode takes us to 1959. Uh, This is a very 1950s kind of movie in multiple ways as uh, that will actually kind of connect with our series on psychedelics, though – I'm not sure if that's why we ended up doing this. So today we're going to be talking about William Castle's The Tingler. How did we arrive at The Tingler? What was this? This was your idea, right,
1: Robert? Well, yeah. Like basically we just did that big series on psychedelics, uh-huh. uh, five episodes. And I was thinking, well, it's time to do a movie episode again. Well, let's let's do a psychedelic film. And so I was thinking, well, maybe we'll do something like Blue Sunshine from 1978, which we're, we're both partial to. Yeah. Or- uh, it- Yes, one of the ugliest films ever made. <laughs> uh, that, that does concern like LSD. Or I thought, well, you know, maybe a more of like a modern uh, film like Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is uh, another psychedelic film that I, I really like. Mm-hmm. But then I started poking around and I realized that the, the earliest uh, reference to LSD in a major motion picture is none other than 1959's The Tingler.
0: Really, the earliest I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, that's what I—that's what I've read is that uh, the references to LSD in this film mark the, the first time that LSD was referenced in a major motion picture.
0: I mean, it would make sense because, as we know from our research on psychedelics, uh, th- there was legitimate LSD-based therapy or LSD-assisted therapy going on in the 1950s. There was uh, LSD therapeutic research going on in mm-hmm. the 1950s. Uh, it was—it was kind of all over the place, and actually, in the 1950s, it wasn't as controversial yet as it would become later. Right. And it was legal at this point, too. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so there probably would have been a lot of experience. In fact, I remember reading a few accounts about people in Hollywood specifically saying that they benefited from LSD-assisted therapy. There were like movie stars Mm -hmm. in the 1950s who had therapists in Beverly Hills that gave them LSD and had them lie on the couch and talk through their problems. And they were like, wow, this stuff is great. So it's kind of surprising it didn't end up in the movies earlier.
1: Yeah, it r- really is. But it's not surprising to me anyway that it ends up in a horror film and essentially kind of a B picture uh-huh. uh, because, because that's where you you see a lot of like the first uh, strikes, uh, the first references to some sort of new idea, new movement, new sometimes a new technology or some sort of new societal uh, concept or fear. I think
0: we should give you, the listener, a direct sense of the flavor of the Tingler. So uh, can we do a little audio sample here? I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed, you can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler?
1: All right, so that was that was uh, <laughs> William Castle himself right just selling you on this picture. It's such a weird trailer because that's just part of it, but it's just basically him in front of the camera saying, "I've got a picture for
0: you." He's got He's like he's not like a film director, he's like a guy with a traveling medicine show. Yeah. He's like, "I must warn you that these tonics are so potent, they have been <laughs> outlawed in four counties for the amazing benefits it has provided. you know, like he he's just selling it and selling it. And, uh, and and so William Castle, of course, was a horror director. He directed movies like The House on Haunted Hill, which also has Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't uh, – did the clip reveal that this movie has Vincent Price? The Tingler features Vincent Price in the lead role. So yeah, you mentioned
1: House on Haunted Hill, uh, 59, Tingler in 59, followed that up with 13 Ghosts in 1960. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just back to back. He would go – he would – you know, produce a number of pictures like this. He would go on to produce Rosemary's baby in nineteen sixty eight. Oh, so, so um produce not direct. produce. yeah, of course so the where we enter the the Tingler territory here <laughs> though, is after the success of House on Haunted Hill, Columbia Pictures set Castle up with his own unit. and uh, and this was his first project under that unit. Uh, he, you uh, uh, this, uh, this was mainly because, you know, he had a reputation for delivering films on time, under budget, and he was famously a promotion king when it came to these films. Uh, and was all, and th- throughout his uh, career, was often, you know, pulling out these different gimmicks. Yeah. Uh, like, not just selling you the theater experience and the shock of the film, but, but something beyond, like some new technology that was going to make the film, uh, you know,
0: all the more evocative. It was like for a time when people were bored with regular old movies, so they would try gimmicks, of of course like 3D right 3D mm-hmm. glasses and all that but but William Castle was, sort of went in another direction yeah he went beyond that so house
1: on haunted hill was filmed in emergo which sounds what? fancy. It sounds like some sort of special filter that's used on the camera. Does but, a Mergo have an exclamation point after <laughs> it? <laughs> uh, I don't think it did, but it, it's kind of implied. Uh, but basically this boiled down to a red-eyed skeleton prop would float over the theater on wires during a key scene in the picture.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: 13 Ghosts uh, was filmed in Illusiono. <laughs> Which meant audience—this is actually a little more complicated. Audience members were given red-blue screens to either see or hide the ghosts that appear in the movie.
0: Oh, I see. So, yeah, there'd be like a, like a color polarized kind of image on the screen. And so you could hold up the screens yeah. to either see or not see the, the ghost on the picture.
1: And that's rather clever. Apparently, yeah. like recent Blu-ray releases of the film, like, come with a little gadget that, that replicates this effect.
0: Yeah, that's kind of fun.
1: Uh, homicidal from nineteen sixty one featured a fright break during which you uh, you know you could you had this break to catch your breath and decide if you wanted to stay and see uh, the, you know, the finale or leave and get a full refund. Uh-huh. So you know it's one of those you see this a lot with promotions of these pictures like they're so confident uh, in its ability to deliver that uh, you, know, you, you were offered a full refund. And then there was also uh, Mr. Sardonicus from 1961, and in this, the audience got to vote with glow-in-the-dark cards uh, on the fate of the villain. And this one's interesting because it was it was almost certainly gimmicked uh, because you had two endings: you had the mercy ending for the villain, and then the the, the ending where the villain got his comeuppance. Uh-huh. And There are allegations that they never even shot the mercy ending. Like nobody was going to vote for (laughs) it. So, you know, you didn't really have the choice. It was just the illusion of the choice. Right, which audience is going to be like,
0: I don't want the villain to be punished.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Castle claimed that he shot it, but, but some disagree. And then there were various other promotional gimmicks and claims over the years. But the Tingler is ultimately, I think, the most famous of these because it was filmed in
0: Percepto. Percepto, that's so good. From what I understand, that means more like there were some appliances installed in seats in the movie theater, which would which would mess with members of the audience. Yeah, basically, Castle purchased military surplus airplane
1: wing deicers, <laughs> uh, which are essentially vibration devices, little um, motors. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And put these up under some of the chairs in theaters showing the picture, and they went off at at a key moment in the film during which the tingler, the monster we'll describe in a bit, is on the loose in a theater in the film. And Vincent Price's character tells the audience to scream, scream for your lives. Uh Uh, And then also Castle Planted,
0: human screamers in key locations as well. Yeah. Uh, and it, so this is funny because this has been replicated in other films like the movie Gremlins too. from, mm-hmm. uh, what was it, 1990 or so or the end of the 80s, whenever it is. That's a fantastic movie by the way. <laughs> one of the best of 80s motion pictures. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, yeah one of my favorites, uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness uh-huh. uh, ends in a movie theater.
0: Oh, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so I think some of them are taking after this William Castle kind of thing where, like, there's a scene in a movie theater and the movie kind of breaks the fourth wall to, like, wink at the audience and be like, just imagine you're in this movie theater.
1: Yeah, I I was actually lucky enough to see the Tingler for the first time a couple of years ago at the, the Plaza Theater here in Atlanta, where it was riffed live by uh, Trace Beaulieu and Frank Conniff oh, of from, Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. You know, fame. Uh, they were there in person to uh, to riff it. And there were no de-icers installed under the seats. But the screaming part of the film was still a lot of fun. Like, everybody in the audience really got into it and screamed
0: for their lives. Right. They actually encouraged the audience to scream because they suggest that the monster from the film has become real and is out in the theater with you. Yes. I can imagine that was a lot of fun with Dr. Forrester and TV Frank
1: on hand. Oh, absolutely. All right. So that's basically Castle in a nutshell. Uh, I don't know how much we really have to say about Vincent Price because, I mean, he's Vincent Price. Right. He he was a a legend, a Hollywood legend, acted in more than 100 films, everything from like the Ten Commandments in 1956 to a string of wonderful Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. He was in The Fly, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, uh, later on, uh, towards the end of his career, uh, Edward Scissorhands. Mm -hmm. So I mean he's and then he was in he was on Batman <laughs> he was right. on the Muppet show uh, he was a cooking enthusiast and author a supporter of commendable social issues and campaigns I mean he's one of those rare old Hollywood stars that the more you learn about him I, I feel like you know the more you look up to him the more you respect him the more you can even relate to him
0: uh, the rare case where you there's a famous person who doesn't turn out to be more and more of a sleazebag bag the more you learn right. yeah <laughs>
1: And then there's a finally of, of note here. There's the screenwriter of the Tingler, uh-huh. which it's easy to overlook with films like this. That yes, somebody wrote this. Uh, there was a screenwriter, and the screenwriter is someone of note because it's uh, it was Rob White, uh, who lived 1909 through 1990, and he was a prolific writer. Uh, that's probably best remembered as the author of the 1972 novel Death Watch which has been adapted twice, once with Andy Griffith and Sam Bottoms and a second time in 2014 with Michael Douglas and Jeremy uh, Irvine. Uh, White had previously worked with Castle on House on a Haunted Hill, uh, and he was uh, impressed apparently by a a creepy white worm prop on the set. But he was also inspired uh, to make the mad science angle in the story a little more cutting edge by bringing in LSD. Mm -hmm. So Turner Classic Movies' uh, insider info... Uh, shares a quote uh, from an interview that uh,
0: author uh, Tom Weaver had mm. with White. Tom Weaver is great, by the way. He he does some really good commentaries on some of the uh, Universal Monster oh, movie cool. Blu-rays that are out. Yeah, he's uh, the author.
1: This particular book it's from is apparently Return of the Beast Science Fiction and Horror Heroes. And this is White's, uh, White speaking here. Quote, I wanted something different from the typical shot or pill that you see in movie Trips. Aldous Huxley told me about a doctor at UCLA who was running an experiment on on lysergic acid, LSD. So I went up there to see this man, Dr. Cohen, and he gave me some of it. Uh, He took me into a nice uh, little room with a cot and a radio, and he got something out of his refrigerator and gave me a shot. It was all legal then. I watched the grain and the wood writhing around and listened to the music. It was
0: very pleasant, although I did never want to do it again. This is funny that he describes it as pleasant because it is specifically deployed in the movie as part of the like acid exploitation kind of uh, vibe where it like gives you nightmares and drives you insane. Right.
1: Now, uh, Huxley, you, you might remember from our psychedelic episodes, not only wrote uh, Brave New World, but he wrote the highly influential book The Doors of Perception in mm-hmm. 1954, which explores the psychedelic experience.
0: Yeah, and uh, Huxley had a correspondence with uh, Humphrey Osmond, who mm-hmm. was an important 1950s uh, psychedelic researcher. And they, it was from their correspondence, I believe, that the term psychedelic came.
1: yeah. And then, oh, by the way, I think we may have touched on this in past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but Huxley uh, experienced aphantasia. Uh, He couldn't form, uh, you know, mental images in his mind except when he'd had large quantities of mescaline. That's interesting. Yeah. So so White had this experience, worked it into the plot— and we'll discuss how he does that later. But then apparently White related his experiences to Vincent Price, hoping that it would convince Price to give a, a more convincing performance in the film, uh, you know, specifically in the scene where he's supposed to be on LSD. Uh-huh. But then Price allegedly just disregarded the suggestion and did it like the typical like <laughs> Vincent Price freak out for the scene.
0: Oh, yeah. He's got the wide open mouth and the oh, oh. <laughs> he's I think he's supposed to be hallucinating that the walls are closing in on him. Mm-hmm. But the scene is hilarious because he's— trying to prevent the walls from closing in on him by running back and forth between the walls and it's like a 30-foot wide room. (laughs) So he runs and pushes on a wall and runs all the way to the other side moaning and pushes on that wall.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, Blame Price uh, in any of this, though, because, I mean, he still gives a, a really solid performance. And oh. it's ultimately like the glue holding the whole thing together. Yeah,
0: his charisma carries the film. I mean, one thing I will say about this movie is I was surprised how engaging it was. We watched it just last night. I don't know how I've made it this far without seeing The Tingler before, especially because I love, you know, 1950s horror movies. And 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 I, I how did it happen? I think for some reason— I had maybe been told or I just assumed somehow that it was one of those really dull, dry 1950s sci-fi horror movies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a number of those. There are a lot of 50s horror movies I like that maybe have a great funny-looking monster, great set or prop or something. But a lot of the characters in the dialogue are just infinitely stiff you know, kind of like gray neutral things receding into infinity. And so it just happens sometimes. I assume this was one of those. Not the case at all. This movie is like highly engaging, really funny camp. And uh, I, I, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop watching.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's easy to overlook it from our standpoint, from looking back through cinematic history. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, if if you see just a lineup of different movie monsters, the Tingler is not going to be as captivating as you know certainly like Universal monsters, but even other things like the 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 crawling brain creatures and fiend without a face, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it can easily be lost in the shuffle. It also doesn't help that the the trailer for it. Is just William Castle telling you how scary it's going to be and right. then, like shots of people screaming.
0: Yeah, but it is a really fun movie. I think because I, a lot of it, I think, has to do with the charisma of uh, Vincent Price and like the weirdness of the premise. A lot of it also just has to do with the zaniness of the plot.
1: Yeah, it has a zany plot and and really just a weird premise. We're going to get yeah. into this and and ultimately draw some uh, some science uh, out of it. But yeah, this is a weird plot and even if white's LSD experiences didn't have a huge influence on Vincent Price's performance uh-huh. and ultimately they don't even factor into the plot all that deeply i still wonder if you know if if what we're looking at here some of the weirder aspects of it might have something to do with the psychedelic
0: experience. I think it is a more engaging film because it was written by somebody who had an LSD experience. I'll go. I'll go that far <laughs> and make that assumption. So maybe we should just describe what happens in the movie. Warning: We're going to have some spoilers for this movie from 1959.
1: Yeah, if you want to watch it fresh, pause the, the the podcast now. Go see it. It's available, f- you know, for rent at all major online uh, movie rental uh, uh, websites. Uh huh. All right, so the plot of the film is kind of a mess, but here's how it goes. The crazy central nugget upon which everything is based is that Dr. Warren Chapin—that's Price's character. I think they say Chapin. Is it Chapin? We, okay, we think so it's been a couple of years since I've seen it. So Dr. Chapin—he's a pathologist who makes a game-changing discovery about human physiology, something that scientists, healers, shamans. Uh, you know, uh, body hacking warriors, uh, failed to discover uh, throughout our species' entire history. And this is it. We all have a centipede-like parasite, (laughs) a.k.a. a tingler, affixed to our spine, and it curls up and feeds whenever we exhibit fear. And if it keeps feeding, it kills us by constricting, constricting our spinal cord. But we have a way to cope with it. Screaming weakens the creature and stops its strangulation on the human spine.
0: So you can tell this was kind of, I think, written around the idea or I don't know, maybe it was adapted to what was already in the script the idea of getting people to scream as like a gimmick in the theater. So there are like parts of the movie that just have people screaming. It's like divorced from the plot. It's just faces on the screen screaming into the camera with really ragged, real-sounding screams. It's kind of shocking because usually the screams you hear in a movie feel a little bit smoothed over they're a little bit sanitary as far as screams go yeah but these are these feel unsettling for yeah, sure yeah totally uh and so i this premise is amazing so vincent price it starts off with him as a guy who does autopsies he's like doing autopsies on executed condemned prisoners who were murderers and stuff Mm -hmm. and he he keeps getting this idea why do i find the spinal column cracked and destroyed you know and these people who died of fright there's actually a great part where he's he says something like i've thought about not for two years but the spinal cracking due to fear It's a great line. <laughs> so yeah, you just kind of have to imagine like all of his conversations with his family and friends. It all comes back to the spinal column breaking due to fear.
1: And, yeah, and so he makes this discovery that it's it's a tingler, it's a parasitic organism uh-huh. that not just these individuals have, but that everybody has.
0: Right, everybody's got a tingler. And
1: and uh, I'm. It's been a while since I've I've, I've seen it, but as I recall. Like he uses LSD to try and invoke an intense enough experience of fear in himself to better study the tingler, is that right?
0: Yeah. So he's trying to 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 document the tingler, I think, by taking x-rays of people's spines right after they're mortified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so he wants to do it to himself but he, he laments the fact that nothing scares him <laughs> it's like you know when I was a child I could have been afraid uh, but now I'm just grown up and nothing nothing really scares me like that so he gets the bright idea to inject himself with LSD and this will uh, they, they explain helpfully in the film that this will induce nightmares like nothing else <laughs> and so he does it and the walls start closing in and he starts looking at a prop skeleton and his lab Laboratory, and this causes him to have such terror that I guess the Tingler comes out of him. But the problem is, I think what he's trying well, it doesn't to, come out right. Well, no, but but it, that's it, right.
1: It activates, right?
0: It activates, which means it like puffs up like a balloon on your spine, and you can see it in X-rays when you wouldn't normally be able to see it. Uh, and so the thing that he's trying to do, I think, is get the Tingler to puff up and then see what happens if he doesn't scream. But he's not able to do it. He, he's so overcome with fear that he has to scream. And from this, I think he concludes that it is impossible to avoid screaming if the tingler swells up to a significant size. And like screaming is a natural response that you can't avoid unless, say, you are incapable of screaming.
1: Ah, and that's where we get to our next plot element. Uh, because meanwhile, theater owner Oliver Higgins has a terrible relationship with his wife Martha. Yeah. Uh, Oliver also uh, owns a theater. This mm-hmm. is the theater that is uh, used uh, later. And I believe they just do they just show silent films? Is that's that's right? right. yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> they,
0: they don't they only do the old movies. And uh, like at one point, there's a, there's a long scene toward the end where they're just showing an old silent movie that's a real old silent movie. It seemed like a convenient way to pad the runtime.
1: <laughs> uh so, so anyway, Oliver and Martha, they do not get along. And we're, we're presented with a lot of scenes d- just showing how poorly they get along. Uh, they're always fighting. And, uh, and uh, we also learn that she herself, Martha, is deaf and mute. So you can see where this is going. Now, having heard about the tingler from his neighbor, uh, 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 Vincent Price, uh, Higgins plots to scare his wife to death, knowing
0: that she will be unable to scream to keep her own tingler from killing her. Okay, does that make sense? So. When you scream because you're scared, that stops the tingler from swelling up to such a size that it breaks your spine and kills you. Right. But if you can't scream, it will swell up to that size, break your spine, and kill you.
1: So he just has to terrify his wife to death. Right. And that's what he he sets out to do. He frightens her to death with a mix of, of stage and what I assume are supposed to be actual hallucinations, including an, an actually really trippy uh, scene in this black-and-white movie in which a hand emerges from a red bathtub.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I guess it's another sort of uh, cinematography gimmick of William Castles in a way where – the movie is in black and white, but there is one scene where uh, where this woman is having this horrifying experience, where she looks into the bathroom and the the, the bathtub is full of red liquid, presumably blood, and she has a terrible terrible fear of seeing blood. Yeah. Um. And so, like, how did they do that? I was reading about it. Supposedly, what happened is they spliced in this one scene that was filmed in color where everything in the scene had to be like painted black and white and gray, except the bathtub, which had the red oh, wow. stuff huh. in it. Uh, that That's what's been alleged, but huh. uh, I don't know if that's actually true. I guess another way it could have been done is just like hand coloring of a black and white image.
1: Well, the, either way, the result is impressive. When I saw it f- for the first time in the theater, not expecting it to happen, I mm-hmm. was le- legitimately uh, wowed by it. Uh, because on one hand, it's like, oh, she's seeing blood so vividly that it's visible in black and white. But also, it's like this is a black and white world, and via the this this fear or a hallucination, you're they're actually seeing this color for the first time. So she dies, and then Chapin performs the autopsy and removes the oversized tingler from her spine. Um, I guess it's either still swollen from feeding on all that delicious fear, or just since she could never scream her entire life, it was an enlarged specimen. Uh uh-huh. Uh, but then it escapes and it runs amok, ends up in a movie theater. There were the, I'm skipping ahead. Like there's a uh-huh. lot of
0: – there's a scene where Vincent Price's character is uh, sleeping and it's crawling on him. Well, th- this is all to do with the uh, conflict. I-, I wonder if you might have been conflating a couple of things earlier okay. actually when you said that uh, – that Oliver Higgins and his wife Martha were always fighting. What what we definitely see a lot of is Vincent Price and his own wife fighting. Oh, yes. OK. Uh,
1: That's what I'm getting confused.
0: Uh, his wife played by Patricia Cutts who uh, – she's, she's portrayed as like the scheming heiress <laughs> who uh, – she doesn't take her husband seriously because he spends too much time working – Rachel and I were talking about it and I was like, this is kind of like a Borat movie (laughs) because it's like, it's all about these guys who are like my wife and they want (laughs) to get revenge on their wives and end up using the tingler to do so. And it's, I cannot express how funny it is the way people in this movie keep saying the words the tingler in dialogue. <laughs> so like there's a part where, you know, one of the characters is uh, – Oliver Higgins is explaining his plot to murder his own wife and he says something like, I got the idea from you about, you know, the tingler. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, it's uh, just the yeah the dialogue alone is is wonderful in this. So, at any rate, uh, skipping ahead, the the tingler ends up running amuck. It's running amok in a movie theater, mm-hmm. um, and you know people are or um, or you know it's, it's vibrating the seats, and then people watching it. You know they're having the vibration uh, right. uh, effect going on as well, ideally to heighten the fear. And then uh, Chapin shows up and he's telling everybody, scream, scream for your life in order to subdue the creature. Right. And they're able to subdue it. And then Chapin inserts the parasite back into Martha's corpse. And then in a confusing and perhaps nonsensical ending, the husband winds up locked in a room with the corpse. And he experiences this like, you know, crazy, hallucinatory fear. And her corpse rises up from the table and he's so scared, he's unable to scream, and we're left to presume what that means for him.
0: I was trying to understand what was happening at the end there. It didn't make any sense to me. Why was she coming back to life?
1: I don't know. It, yeah, it's not something that has been established with the creature before. It's not even suggested that it can animate a corpse. <laughs> I feel like they kind of just work themselves into a corner there, and they're like, what would be a flashy ending, and let's do
0: that. Yeah, I guess so. Um... I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just kind of like – it's like the ending of Jaws, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where it's like people could complain like, I don't understand. doesn't make any sense that the shark has this tank in its mouth and that it explodes the shark when it – and it's just like, you know, at that point in the story, you're not worrying about it. It's the finale. You're just – you're good with whatever. Yeah, it's true. They've got you. But but I do think we should
1: just take another moment to just think about how wonderfully weird, and I'd argue incredibly psychedelic, just the basic concept is. I mean, think about some of the perceptions and confrontations of fear, uh, the personification and manifestation of various fears you see in psychedelic literature and descriptions of psychedelic experiences. Yeah. And this film is telling you, hey— they're, your fear is a weird bug monster living inside you, but you can fight back against it. You can scream at it. You can wrestle with it on the floor. Uh, the, it it feels suitably psychedelic in that sense.
0: Well, I think it's one of those things that is not literally biologically true but may actually be a quite useful metaphor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, uh, well, Terence McKenna has written about, uh, talking about, um, you know, this disconnect uh, that humans have with their inner realities and, and from their souls and uh, how that might tie into psychological experiences of UFOs and aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote, we are alienated, so alienated that the self must disguise itself as an extraterrestrial in order not to alarm us with the truly bizarre dimensions that it encompasses. <laughs> So maybe I'm reading too much into the tingler, but, uh, but I no not thought no. about that.
0: You are not reading too much into the tingler. You are tingling at just the right frequency.
1: It's actually kind of a fun mental exercise to try and imagine, like, what would the world be like if there were tingler?
0: <laughs> Let's come back to that.
1: All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back.
0: All right. We're back. So we've been talking about the tingler and Robert I am to understand that you believe the tingler is based on a real-life organism, or at least could be? Yeah, I mean,
1: to a certain extent. It's my understanding, based on some of the materials I was looking at, uh, that it's commonly believed that the basic design of the creature is based on a very real organism. It's not a not an endoparasite or a parasite at all, but it is a real-life organism known as the velvet worm. Mm. And the velvet worm... Um, I, I encourage everyone to look up images or footage of this creature. I know it is is factored into some recent um, Attenborough documentaries. Uh, oh, so, yeah. there, so there is some tremendous footage of these creatures, even though they're 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 hard to find, as as we'll discuss here. But there are roughly seventy species of velvet worm that are still thriving in the world, and you'll only find them in rainforest environments. Uh, again, they're not parasites at all, but rather a leaf litter predator that that has this wonderful adaptation. So just to describe it real quick, it's this this long-looking creature that looks kind of like a centipede and looks almost exactly like the tingler. Um has, you know, this pair of a long antennae in the front and as you're watching it move around, it is there's this odd feeling that what you're looking at is a little bit unlike any other organism. Like it kind of looks like a sea slug, mm-hmm. but It has legs and Mm -hmm. it is on the ground. So what's happening? So uh, it it has a number of really cool adaptations. For example, uh, it's rather slow moving, uh, but it is a predator. uh, And the way that it acquires its prey is by shooting fast hardening slime from a pair of projections near its Mm -hmm. mouth. And this uh, fast, uh, this like quick uh, hardening slime subdues their prey long enough for the worm to, to you know, sh- shamble over, uh, crack open the prey's shell, inject its digestive saliva, and then suck the slurry of saliva and, you know,
0: generally like arthropod guts uh, back out of, the, uh, out of the, the slimed husk. Oh my God, that's awesome. Well, it's kind of like uh, some species of arachnid, like the, the lasso spiders or the spit Spiders that uh, will shoot a pro, uh, like some kind of projectile web thing at mm-hmm. their prey, or drop some kind of projectile web thing from above, and then they can descend. And then, of course, they also deal with some uh, some vomiting or injecting of digestive juices.
1: Yeah, and and this uh, creature can also shoot the slime in self defense. Uh, and uh, it's a very swift attack, especially coming from a creature that's otherwise quite slow. The the other crazy thing about this uh, this creature is that. It's often described as being like a halfway point between an earthworm and
0: uh, and you know proper insects. So it's not a centipede which you would normally think of as having a, like an exoskeleton.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's a stranger creature and it's been around for about 500 million years. Oh, so this is a Cambrian friend. Yeah, yeah. Fossils date back to the Cambrian age. Their fossils pop up in the Burgess Shale in uh, Canada. All right. So we're talking like 505 million years old. Mm-hmm. And also the, the Qingjiang formation in China, about 520 million years old. So we have
0: fossil evidence of essentially the same creature. So wait a minute. That would be... Is, uh, I think all of those fossil beds are ancient marine fossil beds. So would this also be a creature that you would find in the water or would this be like a, a water-dwelling version of it or, uh, or, or do you know what's going on there? I'm not entirely sure
1: on that count. I mean the, the species that are alive today are all terrestrial organisms mm-hmm. uh, that thrive exclusively in rainforest uh, uh, in environments. Uh-huh. Um, they have waterproof skin they uh, their legs have retractable claws uh, and they have it, 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 when it comes down to like how many legs they have it varies like some have as few as 13 uh, pairs of stubby legs others have as many as 43 pairs of stubby legs depending on the species mm. The, um, the spigots that it, sp- that it squirts the slime out of are essentially modified <laughs> legs. And then the <laughs> <What>? slime...
0: <laughs> legs?
1: Yeah. Modified legs? Yeah, like two little modified legs in the front that have become slime spigots. Nice. But then the glands that power those slime spigots, they run the entire length of the creature's body and they amount uh, th- th- for about 10% of the creature's overall body mass. Wow. So basically muscles contract and squeeze it out like fast squirting toothpaste. And there's some other just really uh, like weird curios about this particular uh, creature. Uh, for instance, there's at least one species of velvet, velvet worm that is social and it lives in groups ruled by a dominant female and they have an entire hierarchy, uh, which uh, is just mind boggling. There's uh-huh. a, another species that's apparently all female. Uh, the rest use sexual reproduction with the males uh, in one particular genus simply depositing their sperm on the female's skin, which causes the localized uh, area of the skin to break down and permit the sperm to pass into the female's body and then swim to the ovaries. Oh,
0: so it's like a form of like chemical
1: traumatic insemination? Yeah. Wow. Uh, some velvet worms lay eggs, but most of them give birth to live young. weird so yeah they are they are strange creatures, like really alien feeling creatures, as alien, if not more so than the tingler itself. Mm-hmm. yeah like, I mean, especially the idea that you have these little like a social group of these things um. But, but of course the you know you get into the the, the world of uh, various creepy crawlies and you find other weird curios as well like I, I was reading the other day that there are some varieties of centipede uh, where you see maternal instinct where uh, the, the the mother centipede will like corral the young centipedes and like surround them to protect them hmm. so um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah I mean we shouldn't take uh, just because something uh, is a you know seemingly primitive organism. Uh, and uh, and kind of icky. We shouldn't take for granted the complexity of its life cycle.
0: Yeah, I think uh, a lot of these discoveries undercut the kind of traditional top-level belief in, you know, nature red and tooth and claw, where it's just outside of the mammals, it's all just killing and struggle and mm-hmm. all that. I mean, I think the more we learn about not just, uh, you know, other vertebrates, but even invertebrates, you, you start to see... Uh, I mean, of course, you will see, you know, like parents eating their young, young eating the parents, and right. all that. But you will also see strange, almost m- mammalian-looking parenting instincts that, uh, yeah, that you wouldn't expect if you just have this like struggle and fighting-based view of nature. Absolutely.
1: So, uh, so again, the Tingler. Don't watch the Tingler and expect a, you know, accurate. Uh, portrayal of velvet worm uh, biology and behavior but roughly speaking like the creature is based on the uh, the morphology of a velvet worm
0: well especially because i think uh, don't they say in the movie that the tingler is like indestructible like they they can't pierce it with any implements or oh, something yeah. uh, i imagine velvet worms are not quite like that They they look pretty soft to me
1: Uh, Well, they're certainly not indestructible, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, And they are, you know, again, they're not parasites. It's really hard to imagine how a velvet worm could have... uh, I mean, certainly we see creatures... That you know take on a parasitic relationship over the the course of evolutionary history, mm-hmm. but it's hard to imagine how a velvet worm would carry this off. You know, like velvet worms start hanging out on people's necks, <laughs> or on uh, you know uh, you know pre-human hominid necks, and uh. then it just kind of uh, evolves from there. Uh, I don't think it really makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, I do think. Well, okay, so let's follow up on that then. Because I think maybe we should talk about. Uh, the idea of fear and the endosymbiont. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's uh, the premise of the Tingler, I guess, is that we've got this um this endosymbiont living inside us. And I don't think it's ever said explicitly, but I get the impression that it's that this thing has evolved with us and is passed down from parents to offspring since there's like no indication that people have to get exposed and infected at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. Did you get the same impression? Right. It's it's It seems to be –
1: imply that it's just ubiquitous, like you're not gonna find communities of of humans that do not have a Tingler.
0: Right, and so this kind of like cross-generational inheritance Uh, of the endosymbiont tingler is what we would call vertical transmission, uh, parent-to-offspring transmission. Now, it turns out that, of course, humans do have plenty of other organisms living in and on us, which apparently have evolved with us and are vertically transmitted across generations. Uh, One very ancient, deep, and fundamental example is the mitochondria inside the cells in our body, Uh, So, of course, uh, the mitochondrion is this organelle that's found inside the cells of eukaryotic organisms, meaning organisms with a cell nucleus, and that, of course, includes us. And the mitochondria do important work to help supply the host cells with energy. They, they generate adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which is a molecule that carries chemical energy around inside the cells and inside the body. Uh, but there are very weird things about mitochondria. So the, there are these little organelles inside our cells. But one example of a weird fa- fact about them is that mitochondria – have their own DNA. So inside a cell in your body, you've got your cell nucleus, which is where you find your own primary genome, the genetic code that builds your body. But then there are these other little things inside our cells that have their own separate genome. And the really weird thing is when you examine that separate mitochondrial genome inside our cells, it looks an awful lot like the genome of a bacterium. Now, why would that be? Well, the prevailing theory about the origin of mitochondria is maybe even weirder than the tingler. It is that long, long ago, a bacterium was somehow captured inside an early eukaryotic cell, meaning of course a cell with a nucleus. And instead of dying or just getting resorbed or whatever, the bacterium lived – and became a part of the cell that captured it, reproducing along with it, and its descendants evolving along with the descendants of the capture cell. So that now, what was once a free-floating bacterium that was completely unrelated to us is a fundamental part of the cells in our body. It's a crucial element in what our cells do.
1: So in this, the the human-tingler relationship, you could really look at it as kind of like this oversized, maybe like, you know, cartoonified uh, um, you know, illustration of something that that has actually
0: occurred. Yeah, I mean, and it occurs all the time in nature. One organism just sort of becomes a part of another organism's lineage history over time, uh, and becomes a part of their evolutionary story. And this theory on the origin of of mitochondria is known as the endosymbiosis theory. It's also a leading theory about the origins of other things like chloroplasts in photosynthetic life forms mm-hmm. like plants. Um, but of course, it doesn't stop with the little things inside our cells. We've got other organisms living and evolving with us uh, of all sorts, not necessarily co-evolved inside our cells, but definitely in and on our bodies. And this uh, – the primary example, of course, would be the human microbiome, the sum total of microorganisms that inhabit the environment of your body. This can be hard to fathom, but your body is likely home to so many microbes that your cells with your DNA are outnumbered 10 to 1. Now, what I'm about to say wouldn't apply in terms of mass or volume, but just in terms of sheer numbers of cells, you are only 10% of your own body. The other 90% of the cells that are in you and on you are bacterial cells that are, of course, smaller than mammal cells. Oh wow. And of course, like the tingler, there's evidence that our microbiome is transmitted not only horizontally, meaning, you know, through exposure to microbes in the environment, but also vertically, passing directly from mother to offspring. And we can see this because babies tend to often pick up the same strains of bacteria found in their butt in their mothers. And I think one of the most fascinating things we've learned in microbiology and human medical science over the past few decades is how deeply bound up each individual human microbiome is with that person's health and physiology and even with their psychology, with what's happening in their brain – And here's where I would argue that if the tingler is a co-evolved endosymbiotic organism living inside our bodies for generations and influencing our fear and anxiety, we sort of do have a tingler, (laughs) at least a collective tingler, and it appears to be your gut flora, the microbes living in your digestive tract. It's been established in plenty of studies by now that there are relationships between what's happening in the gut flora and human behavior, including things like depression and anxiety. Uh, And so does that relationship extend to the direct regulation of like the immediate fear response like it does in the tingler? You know, you're getting freaked out about something scary you encounter in your environment. It appears likely yes. Uh, So I want to look at a recent study from 2018 by uh, Alan E. Hoban et al., published in Molecular Psychiatry, called The Microbiome Regulates Amygdala-Dependent Fear Recall. And the basic gist here is that normally – Mice can be conditioned to exhibit a fear reaction. And this usually consists of freezing in place when they hear a sound that they've come to associate with something scary or bad. You know, So there's like a tone that mice get scared of. And when they hear the tone, they freeze in place. And the study found that germ-free mice, meaning mice that are depleted of their internal microbiota, do not show fear responses the way normal mice do. Huh. They appear to have a reduced ability to learn to be afraid of things and have the fear response. And weirdly, once these germ-free mice are exposed to environmental microbes and become infested with all the normal kinds of bacteria that make a home inside mice guts, the same mice suddenly do have a fear response again. Hmm. And the researchers believe that their study shows that, at least in mice, the gut flora somehow exert control over the amygdala, which is a region in the brain that appears to be crucial for generating fear in response to frightening stimuli. Now, of course, we don't know if this would translate perfectly to humans. This is just a study in mice. But there's a decent chance, I think, that the same is true for us. And if this is true for humans, can you imagine, like, what if a fecal transplant, which is that is what it sounds like um, or, or some other method of manipulating gut flora could trigger fundamental changes in our propensity for anxiety or our phobias or even our fundamental personality. Mm, the haunted fecal transplant sounds like <laughs> a, a potential
1: uh, gimmick for a future horror film.
0: I mean, how crazy is that? Like the, the we, We're full of bacteria mm-hmm. and, and other microbes that are controlling our brains in a way. I mean, it doesn't feel like that, but yeah. it, it it does very much appear to be true.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is one of those things that certainly over the course of of the show, uh, here is stuff to blow your mind. We, you know, we we just have looked at at case after case where uh, show where we, we're exploring just the power of uh, the microbiome, you know, and it's, and it's it's integration with with the mind and. and what we think of when we think of ourselves.
0: Yes, exactly. These bacteria in us and on us aren't just in us and on us. They are us and we are them. Uh, the, the most fundamental thing. I mean, the only way that you would really say that they are not us is that they they have different DNA than we do. But like, they share the same body space. They're involved in the same generation of behaviors as our brain cells are. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So basically, we am legion <laughs> 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 is the take home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, amazing. Like like, how much of your idea of yourself. Your your Legion personality, your Legion identity is a result of effects generated by the ecosystem of non-human organisms living in your digestive system. I posit that this is actually much weirder than having a tingler on your spine.
1: I always anytime I think about all this though, I always come back to the Futurama episode. Where fr- Fry eats a uh, tuna sandwich that he buys out of a machine in a, a men's room, uh-huh. and it causes this—they're uh, th- like these little intestinal worms—to uh, build a colony inside him and like build little cities. And, and then they start fixing him and they make him smarter mm. and so it's essentially like it, it has a there's an inner space aspect to the episode as well as a Flowers for Algernon aspect to it uh, oh. and it's a great episode overall and very funny uh, but but what they're portraying in a sci-fi sense and in
0: an exaggerated cartoony way
1: is essentially some of what's going
0: on. Yeah, we're, we're full of these legions of life that in many senses control us and or at least exert influence over us and in some ways really truly are us. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we should take another break. And then after we come back, we can talk a bit more about fear and the scream.
1: All right, we're back. Say what you will about The Tingler. Love it or hate it,
0: but it has some tremendous screams in it. Absolutely. Yeah. And Robert, there was one thing we were talking about uh, the day after I first watched The Tingler. uh, I, I came in in the morning and we were discussing... The quality of screams in movies and I, I had this reaction to a part of the movie. So uh, my question is why do some screams – feel so much more disturbing than others when you hear them. Like there's one screaming session at the beginning of The Tingler that felt like something that was not out of a 1950s movie. It felt more like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. With some, some great screaming in that film, uh, courtesy of uh,
1: what Marilyn Burns.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just like the, the pure sonic quality. I mean, it was nothing about what was happening on screen. It's just the sound of it felt extremely disturbing and almost unbearable. It had this weird kind of forbidden or pornographic quality to it. Uh, And this is purely to do with what it sounded like, the auditory qualities and nothing else. Most movie screams, especially from the horror movies of the 1950s, feel kind of sanitary. They're kind of stagey and clean. Uh but this scream at the beginning of the Tingler feels wrong and you want it to stop. And the only reason I could really identify was that something about it sounded the, the word that came to my mind was ragged. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah,
1: absolutely. This yeah, this kind of like ragged like screaming with no uh, you know, no intention of retaining your voice for the next set of takes. Yeah. Um you know, and and you do when you do encounter it in a film, it it does just add to the uh, the intensity of the horror. Um, and you know, only a few films really come to mind. I instantly think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think of House by the Cemetery, in which you have a, a small child, disturbingly enough, who is screaming its head off uh, in in a similar fashion, where it has this raw intensity.
0: Yeah, and it's it's like a I I was honestly shocked by how disturbing it sounds just to hear a scream like that, that like even with no context at all, because no, no story is happening at this point in the movie. There's just like <laughs> – just before it starts, they're just like, we'll throw some screams at you. <laughs> and it really – it really like hurt to listen to. And so I was thinking about that, and like, "Wow, what's going on with that scream?"
1: And well, one read could be, Joe, that it's causing your tingler to relax. <laughs> and uh, and I like my tingler inflated. Oh my goodness. what if what if this were the case? what if what if the tingler does not, uh, relax does not re- react at all to fake screams it has to be like a significantly believable scream oh and therefore like a lot of our horror movie viewing is uh, ultimately pointless because you knows catharsis to it like it's not actually going to relax the tingler that is uh that is slowly um you know exerting this death grip on our spine
0: yeah it's one of those smooth polished stagey screams that just uh does nothing for your tingler
1: yeah But I can sit around all day and discuss the ramifications of if the tingler was real. Uh, Let's get
0: back to just the the nature of screams in our reality. Okay, Well, I've got that question. So so we can table that for a second about like what is it about the sonic qualities of that scream that felt so different than most movie screams, especially of that period? The the other thing is just the question of like why do we scream? Is there a Mm -hmm. biological answer of what's going on? The the, the second question I think is – is not a super complicated one. Like the, the leading theories about why we scream are just not very surprising, right? right. Uh, screaming in response to fear is most likely some kind of instinctual alarm call. When you see something dangerous, you kind of scream automatically and this serves a purpose of communicating the threat to others because right. we're social animals. Right,
1: and we see animals that do this uh, to communicate
0: with members of their own species. We see animals that do this seemingly to communicate with with other species as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, and this could serve Several different biological functions, maybe all at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. One is to immediately request help, you know, like I need air support. Uh, you, you scream to request help from friends and kin and other protectors or even other types of uh, animals in your environment, especially uh, help from adults if the scream comes from a child. I think that's like a very specific yeah. – Kind of thing like, you know, you hear your kids scream and there's like this automatic, powerful, immediate response.
1: Yeah, and that's another reason why House by the Cemetery, uh, Lucio Fulci's film, is probably so disturbing because you're getting this very authentic scream from a young child. And there's also the sense that they just terrified a young child Yeah, the
0: scene. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a. It's especially bad because they sound actually scared. Yeah. Um, but uh, a couple of other possible biological functions the scream serves, again, not mutually exclusive. Another one is to maybe warn nearby kin of danger, reducing Mm -hmm. their own risk. So you share some genes with them, you scream, and that warns them of danger. They're also in reduced danger because now they're on alert. Right.
1: So if I wandered away from the rest of the tribe and a large predator jumped out at me, Mm -hmm. well, I got that one good scream in. So I, I may be toast but at least there's a shot of the rest of my people
0: hearing my death cry and uh, reacting to save their own skin yeah and then another perhaps secondary maybe possibly in some cases this is what's going on uh could be defensive some predators or threats might be frightened or held at bay by a sudden very loud noise oh yeah
1: yeah i mean yeah this is this is uh true i mean you uh, one of the things that is advised in encountering say a bear in the wild is
0: to be loud like yeah. make a lot of noise exactly yeah uh, but but there are also some interesting find so so like the question about why we scream biologically that doesn't seem like a big mystery that that seems like one of those pretty straightforward evolutionary stories, Mm -hmm. at least as far as we know. But there are some very interesting scientific findings about what happens in our brain when we hear a scream. Mm. And so I was reading about a study by by Luke H. Arnall et al. in uh, Current Biology in 2015 called Human Screams Occupy a Privileged Niche in the Communication Soundscape. And so essentially what the authors here found is that the brain has a different – dedicated pathway for processing screams and this pathway is sort of separate from the way it processes other sounds and other types of auditory communication between people Uh, and so they they did some brain imaging and it revealed that most of the time incoming audio is uh, perceived by the ear of course and uh, leads to activity in the, the standard auditory processing centers but screams on the other hand are heard and then they sort of bypass normal auditory processing and instead trigger pretty much immediate activation in the amygdala, a region of the brain that of course is very important for generating the fear response. Now the brain seems to immediately recognize screams as signaling something threatening and then it responds accordingly. It's kind of like, it's like a shortcut in there. You don't need to figure out what's going on. As soon as you hear the scream, the fear, the you know the, the alarm state wells up inside you. And so I was wondering, well what's the acoustic criterion here? Like how does the brain tell what a scream is? Or how much like a scream a sound has to be before it triggers this reaction, and the researchers found that the main criterion activating the fear response in the brain was was a quality of the sound that was that they called acoustic roughness, mm-hmm. and this means how rapidly the amplitude of the sound is modulated. Uh, it can be kind of hard to explain, but basically it refers to if the loudness of the sound rapidly changes so think about a smooth sound kind of like a single tone alarm you know deep versus those rapidly pulsing alarms that might play the same pitch maybe even at the same volume but suddenly, but like rapidly pulsing between loud and quiet and it takes on this kind of rough ragged kind of auditory quality and i think this might be the reason i'm okay with normal movie screaming but sometimes a scream in a movie sounds real and it sounds wrong and it sounds upsetting i think that quality of raggedness that i was trying to put words to might at least be partially rooted in this quality they're talking about in the paper of acoustic roughness
1: this is really this is really interesting. It makes me think too about uh, music that incorporates like a lot of uh, like primal yelling and screaming. Um, and obviously, they love, you know intense metal such as death metal. Oh yeah. And I think a lot of that is going to fall into the category of kind of movie scream territory. Uh, whereas there are particular artists. The one that comes to mind is uh, the vocalist uh, Jen's Kidman of Meshuggah who uh, at least in some of the tracks if not really just collectively in all the tracks is able to really bring out this this guttural raw like vicious raggedness to this the things that he is screaming mm-hmm. in in the songs and it's a uh, and and it's it's tremendous i mean it's one of the reasons where like I'll, i i don't listen to a lot of death metal but i'll i'll listen to the and then I'll, I'll i'll think about how much i appreciate it and then i'll try out other artists and i'll often f- just listen to it and and think, well, that's not really scratching the same itch. And I wonder if that's part of it. Like I'm not, it's not activating the same circuits in my brain because it's a different level
0: of vocalization. Uh, So you want your metal to be like more directly activating of the fear circuits in your brain.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. If I'm listening to, you know, if I'm listening to something called chaos sphere, you know, or something, you know, or or new millennium cyanide Christ, it needs to have a, it it needs to connect with that fear network.
0: Otherwise Uh it's it's disingenuous, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, another interesting thing that they found in the study was that it wasn't just human screams like the same auditory qualities came through in like alarm sounds like people yeah. found synthetic alarm sounds more disturbing if they had this quality of acoustic roughness that sounds kind of like raggedness to us you know yeah. the rapidly modulating volume right so i'm not positive but i'm i'm like 90% sure that's what's going on in my reaction to the screaming session at the beginning of uh, of the Tingler, it's got acoustic roughness that most movie screams don't have.
1: But of course, in the movie, the Tingler individuals don't just scream. Uh, there, there's also this idea of 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 dying uh, due to the inability to scream. Yeah, uh, the idea of just being scared to death, and that's another uh, that's that's another like fun topic
0: to unravel. Well, yeah. They, uh, so in the movie, the explanation is. Can you be scared to death because when you get scared and you can't scream, the tingler crushes your back? Right. Uh, it breaks breaks your spine. And that's like what gets uh, uh, Vincent Price's character really excited. There's that part where he says, like, I've thought about not for two years, but the <laughs> breaking of spines due to fear. <laughs> But obviously, that's not what
1: is happening uh, in actual human beings.
0: No. Though the question, I guess, is can you actually be scared to death? Mm -hmm. And the answer is absolutely yes. You absolutely can. And this does happen. I found a good article about this from Scientific American that was consulting with an expert named Martin A. Samuels, who was chairman of the neurology department at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And so, uh, so, so Samuels talks about uh, these cases. And basically, there, there are tons of documented instances where a sudden terror causes somebody to die. But the big question is, we know that when people die of fright, it's not because something like living in them cracked their vertebrae. Something else must be going on. Uh, so what is it? Well, according to Samuels, the primary mechanism of death when people are scared to death seems to be damaged to the vital organs, particularly the heart, by a toxic surge of stress hormones, primarily adrenaline. Uh, so when we experience terrifying stimuli, our bodies kick off a familiar process that you've almost certainly both heard of and felt for yourself, which is the fight or flight response. And this is a response within the autonomic nervous system that reacts to a threat by preparing the body for life-saving action. So the heart rate increases; it's pumping more blood. More blood flows to the muscles. Uh, perspiration increases. The pupils dilate, meaning they you know they get bigger to let in more light. Uh, the normal background workings of the digestive system sort of go on hold. Uh, there's like loosening of the of the lower bowels and all this kind of stuff. And this automatic response is of course very useful if you have to take immediate physical action in response to a threat, as the fight or flight name implies. So this response primes you to either, you know, to freeze up, take in sensory data and evaluate the situation as quickly as possible, then either run away as fast as you can or get ready to fight for your life. But of course it's funny, so many of the situations in which our bodies choose to deploy this type of response in normal life because so many of the things that trigger the fight or flight response to us are not physical threats. They're not something we need to run from or fight. They're like you know you got an email that upset you or mm-hmm. something like that. Oh yeah,
1: paper tigers is the term we often use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the same fear response that we would have to an actual physical threat. We have we still experience those, but it's to these these things that are that are that are not physical threats, or at least not uh, directly. You know, like there's several degrees of separation between uh, this letter you got in the mail and like physical
0: incarceration. Yes, exactly. And so the nervous system, of course, it triggers this fight or flight response by uh, by by releasing, by flooding the body with stress hormones. Uh, one of which, of course, the primary one is adrenaline here. And adrenaline is good at the, good at its job. It causes this rapid response throughout many different parts of the body. It gets us ready to engage in urgent survival behaviors. But uh, according to Samuels in this article, adrenaline is – very toxic in high concentrations. Like flooding of adrenaline can damage organs like the kidneys or the liver over the long term. But the most immediate threat is the damage it can cause to the heart. And this happens when surging adrenaline forces the muscle cells in the heart to contract uncontrollably. And this leads to fatal alterations in the rhythm of the heartbeat, such as ventricular fibrillation, which is when Uh, patterns of contractions in the ventricles actually prevent the heart from pumping blood correctly. And if the heart doesn't pump blood, suddenly our tissues stop getting oxygen and we die. And so according to Samuels, anybody can die of fright, uh, but pre-existing cardiac conditions like heart disease can make you more vulnerable. Uh, And so a weird way of thinking about this issue is that our fight-or-flight response could also be imagined metaphorically as a kind of tingler. Like uh, but whatever – you know, it's like this thing within us that's there for ancestral reasons. It got in us many, many generations ago when it served a purpose – but now the fight or flight response, like most of the time, I mean, unless you live in like a very violent circumstances, mm-hmm. the fight or flight response is generally parasitic on you. Now, yeah, it is. A, it is an instinctual parasite that is serving its own purpose, which is mostly obsolete, and meanwhile killing your body in the process.
1: Yeah, I think I think about this a lot, deal, you know, since I deal with a you know, certain amount of, of anxiety myself. But, like, the anxiety, if, if I think of the anxiety as the tingler, like, the tingler kind of takes on different forms. Mm-hmm. And, like, whatever the thing is that's bothering me at a particular time, I kind of at times stop and realize, well, it's the same force, you know? It's the same Creature, but it's wearing a slightly different skin. It's it's dressed in in some other in the skin of some other paper
0: tiger. To uh, uh, that's going to disrupt my day. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I wonder if it is actually. I, I haven't seen a study about this or anything. But uh, at the, at the risk of getting a laugh here, I wonder if it could actually be helpful to personify your anxiety as yeah. to like uh, to give yourself a visual metaphor to think about your anxiety through. It doesn't have to be a tingler, but a tingler might be an especially funny one if you're trying to disempower your own anxiety response to things that aren't actually going to hurt you. Well, on one hand, I come back
1: again to the, the psychedelic themes of the tingler, mm-hmm. you know, this the various psychedelic, uh, accounts of psychedelic experience in which Fears or even anxieties are personified as something that can then be banished. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, like this is this is tantamount to uh, many religious faiths. You know, yeah. get thee behind me, Satan. Right. Uh, you know i mean that's uh, what is that but taking your fears and anxieties or temptations or so you know so whatever your 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 negative emotional baggage happens to be mm-hmm. and putting it in the form of this uh this 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 non-human entity that then can there then be interacted with or fought right can it uh, can be farted at if say if you're martin luther
0: exactly yeah. Well, well yeah you, it, to to what does he say to the devil i give thee a fart yeah <laughs> I think the Tingler might be a good one. It might be a good one to imagine because the Tingler actually is not very scary. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, if you cut out the parts of the movies with the screaming, that's actually kind of disturbing. The Tingler is very funny. Yeah, Uh, and so I, I wonder, you you listeners out there who have problems with anxiety, try this experiment. I want to hear about the results when your anxiety flares up, when a paper tiger has got you sweating, when you you know you're you're experiencing that that full body stress response and the adrenaline's flowing. And the cortisol is flowing, and you know your organs are, are straining under the weight of this thing that's not actually physically a threat to you. Think it's just the tingler. It's just a tingler in there, and and see if that makes you laugh and helps you get over it.
1: Now, before we close out here, I do want to come back just just to uh, to William Castle's gimmick right here. You know, there's a there's a whole line of thinking on this that that I don't think I would have even considered had we we not just done a multi episode look at photography and motion pictures on our other podcast invention. Uh-huh. Uh, it's especially easy to watch a film like The Tingler and to laugh at its manipulation of audience reactions, right? And uh, and perhaps a bit challenging to view The Tingler and feel anything approaching legitimate fear, right? But of course, we have to, you know, couch the film within the context of its time, etc. Mm-hmm. But another thing that I was thinking about was there uh, were some studies that we touched on in those uh, invention episodes, uh, particularly uh, re- regarding uh, a researcher by the name of Talma Hendler, founder and director of the Functional Brain Center at Tel Aviv Sourasky Medical Center. They found that certain scenes from Black Swan, this is a film from 2010, the Darren Aronofsky, yeah. yeah a lot of kind of Suspiria-esque ballerina shenanigans. And Hindler found that this film uh, produced uh, results that, quote, compared to a schizophrenia-like state with the cognitive and emotional centers of the brain operating dramatically in and out of sync. Now, this is, of course, a much more modern film we're talking about here uh, and certainly one that showcases a much more ambitious and technically proficient cinema. Uh Uh-huh. But I think it underlines the the idea here that films induce a kind of alternate cognitive experience, or maybe even an alternate cognitive reality in and of themselves. Uh, You know, they're not that different in some respects, uh, you know, compared to a a psychedelic experience. And so it's it's interesting to, to think about cinema in that regard, that we're taking this medium, that, that messes with your brain, mm-hmm. that changes how you're perceiving reality. And then on top of that, we're going to just fill it with fear and death and terror <laughs> yeah. and see what happens.
0: Yeah, that's funny. I mean, um, I, I agree with you. I, I do think you could legitimately think of watching a film as a, a form of entering an altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's actually a stretch at all. It it does bring us back to this question, you know, why, why people do enjoy horror movies. I mean, you and I both enjoy horror movies. Like, wh- why is that fun? Like, you would think that you just uh, – you would think that you would never want to provoke negative arousal states like fearfulness – uh, without needing to, because I mean, there's enough stuff in life giving us anxiety. But I, I think we talked about this when we went uh, as guests on uh, Movie Crush with Oh yeah, with, yeah. with Chuck Bryant uh, over on that show. If you haven't checked that out, we're we're on some episode. of Yeah, that. it was like a, an October episode. I yeah, believe, yeah. Uh, but we talked about our love of horror movies, and you know, I totally have the opposite experience. For me, for some reason. Watching scary movies seems to to decrease my level of anxiety about normal day to day stuff, and I don't know exactly why that is, but I think it's that, you know, it, it sort of like um, it gives you a, a kind of low stakes practice environment to sort of observe your fear in a controlled setting where you know that nothing's actually going to threaten you. Well, you can also think I, perhaps
1: uh, maybe this is a stretch, but you can think of this anxiety inside of us. As this, you know, this autoimmune function mm-hmm. uh, that is there to deal with actual threats, mm-hmm. and when when those threats are not there, I mean, what what does it do? What does it have to feed on? In the same way that uh, that if you were isolated from stimuli, if you were say in solitary confinement, the senses may pick up on sensory data that is not quite there and extrapolate it. Mm-hmm. So perhaps on on some level, it's like we don't have enough. Real concrete threats to fear in our day-to-day life—actual tigers, you know, actual boulders falling uh, uh, from the cliffs onto us—but uh, we're we're still hardwired to deal with those kind of threats, and so without those kind of threats, we end up fearing all these other things. Yeah, and it, then a horror movie, a good one anyway, gives us something else to feed to the tingler in our mind.
0: Yeah, somehow a, a monster is is a nice compromise there. It's like something that you can. Focus this fear response on, but you know it's not actually real. Yeah. Now, one thing I will say is that I don't know if I'm really a fan of when I watch a horror movie that's so good and so effective that I, I walk out kind of looking over my shoulder. <laughs> uh, it doesn't happen much anymore. It used to happen more often, I guess, when I'd just seen fewer horror movies and I was less exposed to it. But Well,
1: I mean, I remember seeing the original American uh, remake of The Ring. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I was basically up all night after that. And yeah. at the time, that was not a lot of fun. But I look back on it fondly because yeah, I had yeah. like, such an authentic you know, emotional, fear-based reaction to that film, and it's it's just something I rarely experience with a movie. Mm-hmm. The same can be said for a lot of psychedelic experiences, though. You know, you hear people <laughs> say, well, you know, it wasn't fun at the time, but I learned something from it.
0: Uh-huh. Oh. I had the exact same reaction with, with the American remake of The Ring when I was young. I don't know how old I was. I must have been, I don't know, eighth or ninth grade when oh, I saw that. Oh, I mean, I,
1: I was... Technically like an adult at the time. And uh, (laughs) I still stayed up all all
0: night, you know, unable to shake it. Uh, Yeah, it it certainly made like TVs pretty freaky. Anytime after that you turn on a TV and Mm -hmm. static pops up. It's like, oh. Well, you know, maybe
1: we'll have to return to the ring in the future. I know we've talked before about potentially exploring uh, something related to uh, like superstitious ideas about uh, technology.
0: Oh yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, I will report. I, I still think it actually is a pretty well-made horror movie. Like a lot of the imagery is pretty inventive and creepy, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of holds up. But at the same time, I, I rewatched it more recently, and it it didn't have the same effect anymore. And now parts of it made me laugh. Yeah, but not to say it's not it, it, that it's like bad. It's just like I. You know, somehow, uh, especially in the context of my memories, yeah, a lot of the, the stuff, the scare moments in it have become funny. Yeah. Oh,
1: and of course, it was a, a, an influential film. So it's kind of had a chance to dilute itself through popular culture, I imagine. But it's still got Brian Cox in it. Mm. So there, you can't fault you that. can't
0: go wrong with Brian Cox. Put Brian Cox in every single movie. It'll be better.
1: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close this one out. You know, obviously, we'd love to hear from anyone out there. Have you seen The Tingler? Uh, do you have uh, you know some, some fond memories of this film uh, perhaps you even saw it in the theater if you saw the tingler in this in an actual theater like original uh, production or even you know more recently but definitely if you were in a vibrating chair we we totally want to hear about that uh, likewise if you have uh, suggestions for future episodes of stuff to blow your mind in particular if you have suggestions for future movie episodes that we do uh, we would love to hear from you in the meantime head on over to stuff to where we'll find all the shows and And if you want to help us out, the best thing you can do
0: is to rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producers, Seth Nicholas Johnson and Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.